we might ask ourselves, why are we here doing what we're doing? And it's because we have some level of understanding that through Dharma practice, through practices of awareness like this, we're able to transform the mind. It is possible to develop wholesome qualities of mind so that they are more readily accessible to the mind, to the heart. And it is possible to reduce the frequency and intensity of unwholesome states of mind or qualities of heart that arise. If this wasn't possible, why would we make this effort? And yet it's not always our immediate perception or belief that we have this transformative capacity in our heart. We have seen, each one of us, the frequency with which habitual reactive patterns of fear, anxiety, frustration, depression, we have seen how habitual they can be in the mind. And it is just a short, slippery slide from seeing the frequency of those unwholesome states of mind arising to believing that's the way I am. And when we misperceive a momentary perception as the way I am, we eternalize and make more solid or permanent even a temporary state of mind. And if we don't hear the possibility or hear of the possibility that we can develop the mind, we will fall into this locked-in view of ourself where the best we can do is learn to endure the unwholesome states the mind arise and hope for the best of the wholesome states. But it is possible. And even with a little practice, we can see that we can reduce the frequency and the intensity of unwholesome states of mind arising. And the Buddha offered, and in many uh, teachings and traditions of practice, there are just innumerable hundreds of techniques for dealing with unwholesome states of mind and for cultivating wholesome states of mind. <clears throat> But the work of developing the mind must be done with a wholesome state of mind. If we undertake this practice to discover the mind, to augment the wholesome and deplete the unwholesome, if we undertake this practice with a striving mind or an aversive mind or a critical mind, we're only going to make more trouble for ourselves, And so it's important as we begin or continue practice to really bring the
the wholesome qualities of mind to the forefront of our effort in practice. <clears throat> and the way to do that is to understand the nature of the mind and understand the nature of experience. To observe the mind is to observe the present moment. We don't even know there's a present moment without the activity of the mind. Everything we do in life is the activity of the mind. We don't have to look far to see the activity of the mind. In fact, we can't escape seeing the activity of the mind in every moment. To see, to think, to hear, to feel, to plan, to remember are all activities of mind. And yet it's so easy to say, I don't see the mind. Where, where's the mind? Where's the mind in this situation? Without the mind, we couldn't even ask that question. And so we want to understand that everything that we do and see and hear and feel and smell and taste and touch and plan and forget and remember is the activity of the mind. What we're doing in this Dharma practice is learning about the activity and the nature of the mind. There's one teaching of the Buddha where it's, it's the, short, the short version of the teaching of the Buddha. He says, in all of your life, there are only six things happening. This is to paraphrase the Buddha. There's seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, and thinking. That is the entirety of the teaching. That's all that ever happens in your life. And everyone experiences all six of these activities of mind. But not everyone is practicing with them. Out of our conditioning and habit, when any of the six sense doors are activated with sight, sound, smells, taste, touch, without the right understanding, our minds will use those objects to strengthen greed, aversion, and delusion. But with right understanding, we can use those same objects those same experiences of the six sense doors to develop awareness, stability of mind, and understanding. The same object. It's how you understand the object and what you do with it that makes all the difference in the world. This right view that I mentioned that makes it possible to develop the mind instead of strengthen the unwholesome habits of mind is the development of right view. And right view is extraordinarily important. In the Buddhist teachings of the Noble Eightfold Path, the path to the end of all forms of suffering, this path is divided into three trainings. The first training is a training in living in harmony with one another by uh, 
careful attention to the intention to speak and to act, purifying our speech and actions of the defilements, forms of greed or aversion or confusion that, when acted out, harm others. And so we take the precepts here, and in that way we begin to tame our speech and behavior so that we're not hurting each other carelessly. But even with that practice and that development of mind, it's still possible to be tortured by our own mind, the activity of our own mind, obsessing about what it'd like to say and do. And so the Buddha offered a second training, which is the training in samadhi, or uh, tranquility of mind, or stability of mind, which temporarily prevents the arising of the obsessing mind. And it does that by developing mindfulness, developing awareness of a chosen object, or one of the Brahma-viharas like loving-kindness or equanimity, or in Vipassana, developing mindfulness of or awareness of the momentary arising experience, whatever it is. We know how challenging that is to be continuously aware or mindful in order to, moment by moment, keep the hindrances, the defilements, those torturous states of mind, out of our mind. It's not easy. They have a way of just sneaking in again and again and again when conditions are right. And one of those conditions is a lapse of wise attention. And so the Buddha offered a third training in the, Buddha, in the Noble Eightfold Path. And the third training is the development of wisdom, or panya. And this development of wisdom is the purification of our understanding. It's not just purifying our intention before we speak or act. It's not just purifying our mind of the hindrances, defilements. It's purifying our understanding of wrong view. And this practice of wisdom has two elements. The first is the development of right view. And the second is the development of right or skillful thought or intention. For us here, as we undertake this practice, it's important that we use wisdom in our practice to develop more wisdom. We can't do this practice without some understanding of what we're doing. But that understanding may be wrong or unskillful. And so we want to gather the information that's available through Dharma talks, through Dharma books, through the teachings of the Buddha, however you access it. We need this information so that we can understand correctly, skillfully, how to practice. We can make a lot of effort 
gain nothing if we're not informed by the teachings of the Buddha. Secondly, we need to use this information that we acquire, whether it's from books or teachers or talks. We need to, we need to reflect on this and understand it for ourselves. Does this make sense? Is this intuitively correct? Can I even imagine that this is helpful, skillful? Or is this just off the flaps, not apparently useful? If we don't use our own intelligence in considering what it is that we hear in these talks like I'm offering, or in instructions, or in reading the books, we may acquire all kinds of information that is not particularly helpful. But the test is when we take the information that we've acquired and that we've reflected on intelligently and put it to practice. Use it in our practice as we practice here. If that information and your practice yields insight, if it offers you a subtler understanding of what's going on, a deeper understanding of what's going on, a way of understanding what that was not understood before about this mind-body process, then you can trust that the information is reliable, that you are applying it intelligently, and that the insight is confirming to you the value of what you're doing. If we don't see the development of insight in our practice, we seriously have to consider whether we're practicing effectively whether we have the right information, whether we're practicing correctly. If we don't see that we're growing in understanding of the nature of this mind and body, how we become entangled in suffering and how to disentangle ourselves from suffering. It's not a magic bullet. It's from clearly seeing and understanding what's going on. When I first started practicing with uh, one of my teachers, Saito Upandita, I had in about a decade of practice doing retreats and I took a three-month retreat with him and he was very diligently offering the Dharma which I was trying to take in and trying to practice and at some point in, in the, the daily reporting to him over the course of three months he asked me uh, who my teachers were so I told him, and they were all practicing with him at the same time. And uh, so he was questioning me a little further, and, and I told him that, well, uh, I was just practicing because I thought that practice was, you just do this until one day, poof, there, you become enlightened. And he just burst out laughing. <laughs> Wasn't easy to hear that, but nevertheless, what he explained was, that's not how it works. It works because you see over and over again suffering, the cause of your suffering, and how to bring that suffering to an end. We have to learn that from our own understanding, from our own practice. And as I've mentioned before, it is not in a book. Other people's stories of how they learned about their suffering 
you can read in a book. But you can't find your story in the book. That has to happen in your own heart, in your own mind, with your own information, intelligence, and development of insight. So what is this information that is essential for effective practice? What is the right view of practice, anyway? What is the right view of this body and mind, the experience of the body and mind? What is the right view of insight? We're practicing Vipassana. What's the right understanding of insight? What is the right view of liberation? How are we going to know when we're free of suffering? You're not going to grow a halo, I can guarantee you. And nobody is going to confirm it to you. So how are you going to know? <clears throat> Sariputta, the Buddha's only, second only to the Buddha in the development of wisdom, when asked about how one establishes right view within themselves, said there are two elements to right view. And the first is you need to hear what the right view is from someone else. What he said when he said that was, you can't figure it out for yourself. It is so counterintuitive, and the layers of delusion are so thick in the mind, we can't figure it out. It took a Buddha to figure it out, to point it out, and once it's pointed out to us, to Sariputta, to all the others, then we can see it and confirm it in our own practice. But it takes a Buddha to figure it out without the teachings of someone pointing to it for him. And the second element of establishing right view in your heart, in your mind, is after having heard it from another, you then develop wise, a careful attention. And that will reveal the right view and establish the right view in your own heart. So what is the right view of practice? Well, as I mentioned at the beginning or in the introduction to the talk, it is possible to develop wholesome qualities of mind. It is possible to reduce the unwholesome qualities of mind. And it matters what we do with our time. I mean, it sounds so simple, and it is. It's not rocket science, it's not esoteric, it's not vague. It is so simple, it matters what you do with that understanding. If you don't do anything, then the result is predictable. If you do something with it, if you practice with it, the result is equally predictable. But it matters what we do with our time. Third understanding of practice or right view of practice is in Dharma practice, the field of our practice is our own body and our own mind. It's not out there. It's not in the books. It's not in somebody else's mind. It's not in your teacher's mind or anybody else's body. It's in your mind and your body. That's the field for practice. And then, as I mentioned before, 
meditation is all about the work of the mind. No matter what technique you're using or what kind of format of practice you're doing, whether it's a silent retreat like this or dialogue and discussion, it's all about developing the mind. It's all about the work of the mind. So what is the right view of meditation? If that's the right view of practice, what's the right view of meditation? And I'm going to mention it because it's not so apparent. We have other ways of understanding our life that are not right view. And this is what the Buddha said. You need to hear the right view so that you can then apply it in your practice and to see it and confirm it for yourself. The first and the most basic right view is that all that occurs in the body, in the mind, is a natural event. There's no mistakes in what appears in the body or appears in the mind. It is a naturally occurring phenomena due to causes and conditions. It is the inevitable result of those causes and conditions. When causes and conditions come together in this way, it results in this kind of experience, none other. When we understand that, this whole process of life and all the experiences of life are a natural unfolding process due to causes and conditions. The conclusion we can draw from it that the Buddha pointed out is that within this process there is no one to whom it is happening. That is a figment of our imagination. It's something that we apply or ascribe to the naturally occurring processes of cause and effect. If there's no person to whom it is happening, there's no person who's making it happen. Neither someone within ourselves, nor someone outside of ourselves, making this experience of this mind and this body happen. That is so obvious to us, and yet so hard to acknowledge. Think about it. It's a little warm in the room right now. If you could control your body, if you could make it happen, wouldn't you cool it off? Yeah. But the heat in this body is not under your control. It's due to other causes and conditions. And so too with every other experience that arises in this body. Not under our immediate control. And the same with the mind. Somewhere today, you may have struggled with your experience. Been frustrated, disappointed, you know, ashamed, just having a heck of a time. Could you do anything different? Could not. We don't control the mind that way. We can't make the mind do and be what we want it to do and be. 
the mind arises due to causes and conditions outside of our immediate control. It's important to understand this and to see that, and to begin to understand and to see our experience through the lens of this is a naturally occurring result of causes and conditions. Rather than putting it in the familiar narrative of this is happening to me. It's my pain, it's my fear, it's my sorrow, it's my struggle, and it's all about me. That's our familiar storyline. The Dharma storyline is this is a naturally occurring result of inevitable causes and conditions. The second right view of meditation is that in every moment, something is being known. What is this something that's being known? Sometimes it's the obvious sounds or sights or sensations or thoughts, memories, plans, moods, emotions, smells. All of these objects that arise in any moment arise due to their own causes and conditions. When they strike the sense door, when a sight strikes the eye or a sound strikes the ear, it gives rise to seeing, to hearing. And this process is automatic. We can't stop the ears from hearing. We can't stop the eyes from seeing. Even if you close your eyes, you can still, will still draw up uh, memories of things that were seen before. We know we can't stop the skin from feeling or the, the body from feeling sensations. These things just happen due to their own causes and conditions. Understanding this is very freeing, actually, because we don't have to blame ourselves. We don't have to blame anybody else. We just have to learn to live with it, to understand it this way. When I say that in every moment something is being known, I'm talking about objects. What in meditation practice we talk about the object is being known. An object has the characteristic of being known. Anything that is known is an object. which means everything that we know is an object. It's an object of the mind. It's the object of attention. When it arises, it's being known. These objects are incessant. They arise in every moment, one after another, rapidly, randomly due to their own causes and conditions. It is, and they are not the determinant of the quality of the mind. While we may choose to attend to or focus on or linger with a single object like the breath or like a sound or like uh, a thought of loving kindness or compassion, even when we try to do that, it's very difficult. And the mind is constantly drawn to notice other objects that are arising. 
physical, mental, emotional. They may be gross, they may be subtle. They may be inner, they may be outer, they may be familiar, they may be novel. And yet, everything that we know has been an object of the mind. What do we do with them? Before we start Dharma practice, we take all objects as an affirmation or a denial of ourself. If it's pleasant, we like it, that's good, that's me. If it's unpleasant, we don't like it, we struggle with it, and we develop an unwholesome state of mind. With Dharma practice, the task is to see that these objects arise as they do, and to use them to develop awareness, to develop stability of mind, to develop understanding. And to do that, we need to pay attention to them, not to avoid them. To avoid them only sweeps them under the carpet, stuffs them in the closet where we don't see them. And then they can fester, and they can begin to smell, and they can begin to kind of make trouble for us because we're not willing to look at them or haven't yet been able to look at them. But in Vipassana practice, we want to expose them. When they arise in the mind, they rise in the body, we want to observe them, to cultivate a willingness in the heart, a willingness in the mind to just take a look at this. What is going on here? If we don't, then we get caught in a struggle of avoidance or fear of it or rejection of it or struggling with it. And this causes suffering. This causes a lot of unhappiness. And yet if we can understand that here is an opportunity to develop awareness, stability of mind, understanding, freedom, really, then it encourages us to observe them, to be with them, to feel them, to taste them, to touch them, to know them. And that's why we want to develop a healthy curiosity in practice, a willingness to look at even the most familiar, ordinary, mundane experience. Because so much of our life is familiar. You know, we go to the bathroom, we eat so many times a day, we go to the bathroom so many times a day, we, we groom, ourselves, we meet, we talk, we do, we do all kinds of things just over and over and over and over and over again. So many times it has become a habit how we, how we respond or how we react to what's going on inside ourselves. We no longer see it as it really is. We just see it as we've always known it to be. And that's why there's a lot to learn in paying attention to even what we might think are, well, insignificant experiences. Hunger. Did anybody feel hungry today? Sleepy. Did anybody feel sleepy today? Anxious. Anybody feel anxious today? These are common. I mean, every, we feel these things every day. Something like this every day. If you had to write an essay about the actual experience of hunger, what could you actually say about it? 
How does it arise? Where do you feel it? What is the feeling of it? What does it do to your thoughts? Where in the body do you feel it? We don't know. We haven't paid attention. Or sleep, sleepiness. You know, you're about to fall asleep on the cushion. And we've all experienced a lot of that. But what do we actually know about it? What can you say about sleepiness? How does it arise? When does it arise? What are the causes and conditions that give rise to sleepiness? What does it do to the quality of your thoughts? How long does it last when you pay attention to it? Where does it go? We've been living with this for decades, and we still don't know. That's because we don't pay attention. We endure it. We skip over it. We kind of dismiss it. We take it for granted. We get caught in a habitual reaction to it. We struggle with sleepiness. We indulge ourselves when we're hungry, and, and so on and so forth. And we don't take the opportunity to learn about the nature of this mind and body. Well, this is what Dharma practice is all about. Learning about the nature of this mind and body by paying attention to what is mostly very common, ordinary, and mundane experience. When we understand this is just the nature of the body, we don't have to feel so ashamed. We don't have to feel so elated. What we discover in the body, what we discover in the mind. And by applying the knowledge that this is a natural process that occurs due to causes and conditions, we can begin to understand the causes and conditions that give rise to all of these states of mind. Do you know why you become frustrated? Do you know how you become entangled in irritation? Who is going to tell you? Only we can find that out for ourselves. And we find it out by being willing to observe it, to experience it, to, to really look at it when it arises. And this is the right view to have towards all of the difficulties, all of the challenges in your practice. Whatever has been a bother to you in your practice is the fertile ground for wisdom, <laughs> if you have the right attitude. If you have a willingness to learn and understand the value of learning about the nature of them, because they cause us suffering. And for decades, we've just pushed it aside, tried to get rid of it, tried to stuff ourselves, tried to avoid it rather than to learn about it. Dharma practice is to learn. It's through the development of the mind. And the development of the mind is to learn about the nature of things, the nature of this mind, the nature of this body, and how they interact. That right view, or establishing this right view in our practice, is the first job of the yogi. And I spent a long time on it because it's so important Without this right view, we can make a lot of effort and get nowhere in practice. With this right view, we can use all of the same experiences and develop the mind, free the heart. The second job of the yogi is to develop awareness. 
experience happens. Objects arise and are known in every moment. And this has been going on since we were born, or maybe before. And yet, so much of what has occurred in our life, we have not been aware of. And even today, you probably noticed periods of time, even though you had the best of intention and the best of conditions for practicing awareness, developing awareness, you notice the mind has a way of just slipping off into, well, oblivion. It just goes away. And while it's gone away doing its thing, we don't know that we're thinking, we don't know that we're sitting, we don't know that we're in the center, we don't know if it's day or night, we don't know anything. We don't know anything. And this happens frequently throughout the day. We're lost in thought. And yet, while we're lost in that thought, we don't know anything. But as soon as we come back, as soon as there's this ignition of awareness again, sometimes we can recall everything we were thinking about. Even though at the time, we didn't know it. We weren't aware of it. So what we're trying to do with this practice is to cultivate the awareness of things as they happen. We're not trying to stop the mind from thinking. We're trying to be aware of thinking when it occurs. We're not stopping, trying to stop the body from feeling unpleasantness. We're trying to be aware of unpleasantness as it occurs. We're not trying to stop the mind from making plans of the future. It does. It just, it just does that. What we're trying to do is cultivate the awareness of planning as it occurs. So what is this awareness? Awareness or mindfulness is the ability to remember, to recognize present moment's experience. To remember, to recognize the present moment. Rather than being lost in the present moment, it is remembering to recognize. Why is that so difficult? It's difficult, right? I mean, it's easy if, if somebody's narrating to you how to do it. But why is it so difficult? That's why you're here, to find out why it's so difficult. Because until we know, we're going to keep getting lost. And so the challenge for each one of us is to discover what it is that keeps us from being aware. What do we get so entangled in? What do we get so fascinated by? What is it we're so willing to give up our life for? Because when we're lost in thought, it's just like you're not here. You don't know that you're living. This is why we pay attention, to learn how it is we give up our life, how we lose ourselves. Why we're willing to do that? What is the payoff for spacing out for five minutes, ten minutes, 
half hour, a week, or more. If we don't practice, we can, we, can, we can be lost for a long time, as you probably have noticed. And I don't mean just 30 seconds or two minutes. I mean a long time. talking here for 40 minutes. You've been hearing me. Have you been aware of hearing? Most of you have your eyes open and you've been seeing me. Are you aware of seeing? Amazing, isn't it? This stuff is going on. It's happening. in what's happening and weaving it into the narrative of my life that we don't step back to take notice of it. And that's what awareness is. Awareness is the ability to just step back and take a look at, oh, that's what's happening. Oh, seeing's happening. And when the loon just called, we all heard it, but were you aware of hearing? Amazing, isn't it? How such a simple experience can be missed. This awareness is the activity of the mind. And so we miss our mind. We're not aware of our mind. We're not aware of what the mind is doing. That's why we're, we're, we're encouraging you to pay attention to everything. Everything that happens in the body, in the mind, in the environment, in your experience, to wake up to the fact that it's occurring because the mind is here. As I mentioned, the defilements or the hindrances, the obstacles to practice, all the frustration, disappointment, attachment, longing, yearning, fantasizing, Frustration, depression, sleepiness, doubt, confusion that arises are the fertile ground for practice. It is the very place for establishing awareness in order to learn about the nature of these states of mind. They are what cause us suffering. When you're suffering, when you have any irritation, any disappointment, any, it is because there's an identification with one of these states of mind. One of these states of mind has arisen and we've taken it on as me or mine. Not able to be aware of it as just a naturally occurring event. When we begin or as we continue to pay attention to these states of mind, we will begin to understand what the causes and conditions are for the arising of them. We'll begin to understand how fear arises in the mind. How anger, how irritation, impatience, jealousy, attachment, doubt, sleepiness arise in the heart, arise in the mind. And with that understanding, we can disentangle ourselves from it. Great liberation 
possible through understanding. Practice is to observe and to understand the nature of the defilements, not just to get rid of them. We can get rid of the defilements, no problem. You know, start chanting, mumble jumble, anything. Go eat if you're hungry, go take a nap if you're sleepy, you know, give up your fantasies by opening your eyes. There's all kinds of ways to stop and get rid of the defilement, but we don't learn anything and they'll come back again. As soon as the conditions give they're suitable, they'll arise again and we'll be entangled once again. So if a Vipassana practice is to begin to understand how it is that we get caught in these states of mind. What are the conditions that give rise to them appearing in the mind? It's not just because that's the way you are. No, you aren't. You aren't any of those. It's just deeply conditioned habits of mind. So that's the second job of the yogi. The first job is to uh, establish right view in the heart and the mind. The second is to develop mindful awareness. And it's not that difficult. You know, if I tell you to recognize right now that you're hearing me speak, you can recognize that you're hearing, right? That's how much energy it takes. That's how much effort it takes in each moment. Now be aware that you're seeing me move my hand or you're seeing me hold up some number of fingers with my hand. You're seeing. Do you recognize that you're seeing? That's all it takes. That's all the energy it takes in any moment. But the third job of the yogi is to do that continuously from the time you wake up to the time you go to sleep. Now, it, it only takes that much energy. It doesn't take any energy at all in a single moment, but you just have to do that continuously. Why does that sound so exhausting? <laughs> you know, it does, doesn't it? It sounds exhausting. Like, oh my gosh, I don't know if I can do it. We can't do it immediately. But we can gradually gather the momentum and persevere. Right effort in this practice should really be considered the willingness to persevere. The willingness to just, well, just hang in there. Just keep, just keep noticing the most obvious thing that's happening. And if you're willing to persevere, inevitably that is one of the causes and the conditions for the arising of momentum in practice. And the arising for, of momentum in practice makes it all feel easier. That's what momentum is. You know, when things get rolling, it goes a little smoother. Same with practice. Once there's a momentum, once there's a certain threshold of continuity to the awareness, then it all goes smoothly. Then you can't stop it. It's, it's like you're along for the ride. It's happening almost without you. You just barely have to be there to recognize. It happens. If we don't make any effort, of course, there won't be any awareness. And there certainly won't be any momentum. If we make excessive effort, we 
going to wear ourselves out. But if we persevere in our effort, inevitably, we'll gain a momentum of practice and we'll see things more smoothly. We'll see that things are appearing more smoothly. These are our, this is our job here. This is our job in all of Dharma practice, is to gather the information and reflect on it intelligently enough to establish right view in our heart, and then practice insight in a way that can confirm it. And the second job is we do that through developing awareness, which is effortless. But it takes intention. It takes moment. It takes the intention to be aware, remembering to recognize the present moment, and then to do that as continu- continuously as possible. That's our work. If you're here to do anything else, fix it, change it, finish the project, whatever it is, not necessary. Necessary. We don't need to apply or attach any agenda to our practice in order for it to be successful. And in fact, if we do attach any understanding or any misunderstanding that there's something to finish, something to get, something to achieve, something to uh, complete, something to fulfill. just impossible. So look carefully at what is the motivation, what is, what is attached itself to your efforts? What is it you think you're doing here? What is it you're trying to do? And if it's anything other than right view, awareness, continuously, let it go. It's important that we do this work. It can be done. We can disentangle our heart and mind from suffering and the causes of suffering. It is possible. The Buddha said he wouldn't, he wouldn't ask us to do it if it wasn't possible. But it is possible. And therefore, we should do it. Out of compassion for ourselves. And to the extent that we understand suffering and the causes of suffering within our own heart and mind, we understand the same about others. And then we can act effectively in the world to relieve suffering. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.